apparently you know some legal insider trading. You just invest a few days before um, that date, the Padufa date, and then uh, you know try to catch whatever move happens, yeah. and then uh, kind of get in and get out during that time of volatility. So you just wake up one morning, look at the Padufa calendar, maybe three to five days before, be like, oh, new new drug is launching. Quick Google search, quick uh, NCBI search, quick PubMed search, mm -hmm. and then be like, this will do good or bad. Yeah. Welcome to Simulated Podcast. Too good to be true. <laughs> Welcome back to Simulated Podcast. We got Jeffrey Corey on the podcast number seven. And I want to start with something super, super controversial. Apparently, you know some legal insider trading. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Uh, in, a, uh, a pa in the past life. Um, yeah, so there was <clears throat> something I used to do. Didn't know if it was going to be successful or not, but you, I guess you just kind of have to take a stab at things sometimes yeah. and see how they play out. But Like all things. Yeah, yeah like, like all things. But like, yeah, take a stab at it and like half the stuff fails or more than half usually. And then like some of it works. But this was one that like didn't work too well, but definitely had its successes. But yeah, it was like kind of I guess one thing is really important to think about is like finding inefficiencies or like pockets of areas where you can um, I guess you have a unique skill set where you can actually figure something out that someone else can't figure out mm -hmm. like in investing they often call it like edge like trying to find some edge yeah but yeah so what used to do this was a few years back now which was I try to leverage a lot of my uh, scientific background so right I'm a PhD student right now wrapping that up so I have good insight onto like at least how to read and interpret scientific literature and so I would uh, go into some of the PubMed published articles yeah. on different um, clinical trials and try to infer um, obviously there's like some things that are very I suppose very apparent mm -hmm. about those so it's like very clear they distinctly label the adverse effects they distinctly label you know certain parameters um, so that's, I guess everyone can interpret that, but there's some undertones in scientific literature where you can kind of pick up when someone is trying to maybe s state something, a conclusion that's a little bit overzealous to what the data was showing and things like that. So trying to use some of that insight into interpreting kind of how viable, uh, you know, a drug or a therapeutic was, and there were these given publicly stated dates that um, the drug, the FDA would have to make a decision on a drug. Yeah. And so, just to clarify for the audience, so the it's called the PDUFA schedule. I'm calling it the PDUFA mm -hmm. schedule. The many, many pharmaceuticals have to publish when they're about to launch a drug publicly, commercialization, and that can affect their stock price. Tremendously. Tremendously. <laughs> Anywhere from a 5% jump to, I don't know, how, how, how many percent jump have you seen on a good drug? Uh, yeah, this was a long time ago, so I'm trying to recall, but, uh, yes, stuff on the order of like 20 or 30% or something, okay. something like that, but it's like, uh, volatility goes both ways. And so, <laughs> but you can still make money both ways. You can make money both ways. Yeah. You can certainly make money both ways. Um, with, you can, uh, options trading or like, there's like perpetual futures on things, but, um, yeah, so you'd kind of interpret where, what you thought was going to happen based off of a lot of the scientific literature. And obviously there's like a lot of unknowns that are in there as well. Like sometimes the FDA dings you for things like, you know, poor labeling on like the bottle or something like that. Something and they won't stupid. pass you. Yeah. Okay. But um, anyway, just based off the scientific content, you can interpret whether or not that thing was going to likely be successful or like had some undertones suggesting like maybe it might not be. 
uh, and then you just invest a few days before um, that date, the Padufa date, and then uh, you know try to catch whatever move happens, yeah. and then uh, kind of get in and get out during that time of volatility. So you just wake up one morning, look at the Padufa calendar, maybe three to five days before, be like, oh, new new drug is launching. Quick Google search, quick uh, NCBI search, quick PubMed search, mm -hmm. and then be like, this will do good or bad. Yeah. But yeah. can I be a scientist? Do I have to be a PhD? Or can I be a layman? Can I be a right regulatory affairs expert? Yeah. What what sort of expertise do I need to have to yeah. be able to do the legal <laughs> insider trading? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, as Sim mentioned, it's like... Uh, it's it's legal because all this is public, right? Yeah. So this is all data that and information that um, like the pharmaceutical companies have to disclose publicly when they're working with the FDA and things like that. So um, yeah, so it's all all, all fair game. Uh, who do you have to be? So it's really and this goes to like a kind of broader problem I think with uh, science communication and how science is conveyed to lay I'll call say the layman. Sure, but uh, so right now, a lot of this information and with good reason, biology could be like quite complex. There's a lot of moving parts. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's hard to like distill all of that down into just one simple, easily digestible like statement for someone yeah. to like really absorb if they don't know the, like the background information. So I think you really have to be like an academic to interpret a lot of that information you know like if you know you know you know you know that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell yes. right <laughs> like, absolutely but like there's a lot of nuance that goes into kind of some of the higher order okay you know clinical trials outside of clinical trials just like scientific like experimentation and design and things so i'd say you'd have you have to be fairly well read and nowadays like all of this information is available to anybody mm -hmm. it just the learning curve, if you have a baseline of not knowing any science to get there, is is a very steep learning curve. I wonder if you just drop it in ChatGPT, like the abstract, the whole journal article, and be like, "Hey, do you think this would pass a Padufa calendar?" I wonder if that anyone's tried that. You know, that could be enough. That that's pretty. That's a pretty good idea. I've never actually like thought of that, but there's a lot of like ChatGPT like competitors that yeah. are doing at least like layman summaries of scientific literature, so you can. Um, yeah, put them in. I think there's one called chat PDF where oh. you can throw in a PDF and then just start asking it questions and it'll yeah. give you answers based off of the content that's in that PDF. So there's like ways now, like literally yeah. in the last few months. Only in the last few months. Yeah, yeah. Where you can like, I think more as a non-traditional scientific uh, person, get the info that you need. But um, I'd say to really, truly kind of understand it, you, you probably need to have the scientific background for it. Yeah, fair. Also, yeah. there's a website uh, for you and for the audience. It's called a there's an AI for that dot com. Uh -huh. So if you want to just like, oh, I don't know which AI I need, but you can just Google search in that website. I need a photo editor. I need a journal article summarizer. You know, it has Midjourney and all those other fun, you know, AI tools. But you're like, I need this. And it'll give you like 10, 15 different AI tools. So check that out. So so I know you're the uh, the the lead on this podcast, but I want to ask you a question. <laughs> yeah, <sure>. Is <laughs> um what like have you found that using a lot of those ai tools have actually proven to be useful and helpful or do you find that there's enough issues and artifacts that come out of them where they're not as useful as people perceive them to be in the honeymoon phase of the whole ai yeah yeah so um i think it's right now 
AI is a little bit too early, personally. Um, you need to have your brain working along with ChatGPT. So I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, so I was doing a market research for a company I was consulting for, and they're like, hey, would this product be good? What is this product? And like, what is this potential outcome in the US market? And I was like, all right, cool. Let me just ask ChatGPT. And I looked it up. I was like, this makes sense. But then I personally deep dived into it, right? Mm. And before even deep diving it, I gave it a perfect, like, hey, act as a, you know, perfect script. I was like, act as a marketing uh, analyst. This is my parameters. These are my close parameters. Do this. Then I was like, okay, now I know a little bit more about it. Then I'm like, okay, let's deep dive into the, your third bullet point. It was like a lot of active back mm. and forth. If I was a CEO, that's how I'd be, you know, asking my, you know, market analyst person. So it's a little bit of twofold. And I'm sure there's, I, I'm guessing you're leading into this is a question. Is it potential use in like the medical field as a doctor or something? Right. Cause I think that's going to evolve into that down the road, but it has a lot of fear involved as well. Yeah. Yeah. I just curious. I always ask people that question, which is like, cause in my experience, it's been useful for superficial things, but terrible for nuanced things. Yeah. That's that's been my experience with it, and I wanted to see if that's across different sectors and spectrums, the same thing yeah. that's occurring. Because, like, um, for example, and maybe we can get into Research Hub a little yeah, bit. But I want to. In Research Hub, um, uh, it's kind of the the premise of that is to make sure that there's like an open avenue for people to be able to discuss openly discuss science, um, whether good or bad, and like have the scientific community or just the community at large, kind of. Uh, curate that content reddit style a little bit with yep. up and down votes and a lot of people we've noticed since chat gpt came out have been making chat gpt generated responses for things mm -hmm. so someone might ask hey can somebody provide a peer review for this paper or oh i'm inquiring about you know this particular question and a chat gpt response comes out and oftentimes people request citation is there a citation that you can put there that would kind of strengthen your argument and because they're chat GPT generated, mm -hmm. what they'll do is actually gen auto generate fake citations. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. So they'll have fake citations. And then, uh, you know, if you at a glance, you'll look at it it's like, oh, that's that looks great. Like the response is very thorough. Then you start looking into it. You click a couple of the links. Uh, you highlight some of the citations they referenced and try to paste them into Google. And they don't come up with anything because they're, they're yeah. not real. <laughs> yeah. So that's so like it's stuff. trying to. <laughs> But see, that's what you got to do. You got to deep dive into, let's say, hey, it gives you, let's say, nine published articles. You have to read those articles. Yeah. Or you'd be like, hey, give me the reference and websites, the links to the articles. You have to actually engage with it. Totally. Right? Totally. And that's true in any any realm of life, right? Um, but now we're into Research Hub. Please tell me what Research Hub is in a nutshell, and let's go into it. I want to know way more about Research Hub, and I think it's going to be the next big thing. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a... Uh... It's a really cool project and it's at the intersection of um so it's kind of at the intersection of of, of science and blockchain uh so it's kind of this like thin slip you had like two venn diagrams of like people who are like kind of privy to science and people who are like privy to blockchain it's like there's a really like thin like overlap yeah. in the venn diagram of that so um it's something that like i've been quite passionate about and i came up actually with a similar idea uh and then Kind of went fishing through the web and, and ended up finding research hub because i was like i want to see if someone ex if this exists already but the idea with it is um in science uh, a lot of people and this is much lesser known to like people who have not 
been involved in science, but I'll, I'll walk through like kind of like the flow here. So uh, anyone watching this podcast is probably paying taxes mm-hmm. and uh, you're a taxpayer and your money goes towards various things. One of the things that your taxes are earmarked for is like a budget to the NIH. Mm-hmm. So the National Institute of Health. The National Institute of Health gives grants to researchers in academic labs, right? Mm-hmm. So they'll like give money to you to do some kind of research. And that researcher should publish that data uh, to make it accessible to other scientists or industry, people in pharma to help build drugs. They themselves should try to build drugs. But that information is the output of what the taxpayers give them money for. Okay. So right now, the way it works is um, because academics are trying to publish in really prestigious journals, that requires a lot of time to generate the data and to get really high quality data. It takes especially a long time and rigor, which is important. You need to have rigor in science. And but a lot of money too, I would imagine. A lot of money. So like R01s will give you like a million dollars a year or something oh, wow. like that. Uh, some of them are like smaller grants, like you know, a couple yeah. hundred thousand, things like that. But... Um, so the, so that's money coming from the taxpayer. And then you have to that's it. publish content, yeah. like scientific content that's going to help eventually make a therapeutic or disc- elucidate a mechanism for something. And right now, the way it works is researchers hoard a bunch of data for years, years of data, just so they can aggregate it together and finally publish it in a high impact journal at the mm-hmm. end. And because the incentive is I need to publish in a high-impact journal because that's what helps get me future funding. That's what helps move my career forward. Um, that's what researchers are incentivized to do. And that's the wrong incentivization route, I feel like. You shouldn't incentivize all across every segment of research, feels like. Yeah, and but like also that the incentive here is to hoard the data for a long period of time. It doesn't see mm-hmm. the light of day for years. So think about if I was holding on to some really pivotal piece of information that would have helped Pfizer make a drug much quicker. But yeah. I held on to it for three years because I need to get into a good academic journal. It sounds like the dark ages, but, you know, today, which is yeah. really sad. Yeah, and really the journal is just publishing your PDF, making mm-hmm. it public. So that's kind of the way that it's structured now. Yeah. So with Research Hub, what we're aiming to do is have an incentive structure where it actually incentivizes you to do a little bit of the opposite of that, which is we want you to openly discuss, openly publish your data and try to publish it more in in real time, kind of as you get nuggets of quality data come in. Mm -hmm. And that way, what we'll do is we'll incentivize you. We'll pay pay you to, to do those things. And it helps the scientific community at large get to pieces of data a lot quicker that would have otherwise been hoarded for a couple of years. Uh, and then really the mission of Research Hub is to accelerate the pace of science. Yeah. And so we think that right now things are getting bottlenecked because their be- data is being hoarded for years on end. Okay, so who's uh, funding Research Hub right now? Yeah, so um, Research Hub right now um, is actually was co-founded by uh, Patrick Joyce, um, who uh, was someone who uh, was in a PhD program uh, and also in med school ended up dropping out to kind of after seeing some of the issues that were involved in academia and in science, um, uh, co-founded the company. And he co-founded it with actually Brian Armstrong, who is the the CEO of Coinbase, which is is really cool. Yeah, so um, he is the the other co-founder. That's um, huge. 
Yeah, that's it's really a, huge. Yeah, he he actually uh, uh, posted a blog post I think back in 2019 or 2020, something like that, mm-hmm. where um, it was kind of this kind of whole statement around why isn't science operating like open source software? Mm-hmm. Like GitHub. Yeah, like GitHub. Like you're trying to become like a GitHub of science, and so um, that was a really big issue because uh open source software is you put everything out in the open you have people come and like assess your the content of your code and the quality of your code and like why isn't science being done like that you know so uh anyway yeah so it's co-founded by by those two individuals and actually just announced last month uh research hub raised a uh, five million dollar investment from a few individuals uh, led by, I think, some uh, OSS Capital and then some other really uh, prominent people, if anyone's familiar with Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president CEO, Gary Tan, was one of the individuals that also um, invested as well. Uh, and a few, like, uh, more software-driven uh d- Good driven stuff, posts. good stuff. Yeah. Um, okay, so to publish on Research Hub, how, how does one do it then? <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, to go through some of the flow of that, it's uh, very straightforward. There's a, uh, and maybe you're familiar with Benchling. Uh, no, I'm not, no. No, okay. So it's like a, they have these like online electronic lab notebooks. Mm-hmm. So they're rather than <laughs> like the, oh, the way it runs in an academic lab is like so primitive. Yeah. It feels like you're a caveman because there's, you have just like a physical notebook. You take all of your notes on what you did that day in that notebook. And then when you need to reference it, you like, fish through your like three notebooks you have and try to find the information uh definitely not caught up to the 21st century at all so um what we have one thing we have on research hub is an electronic lab notebook where you can put all of your notes uh for every day you do any of lab work any content you want to write any papers you want to publish you can write them on there and you can think of it like a google doc you can invite contributors and collaborators to work with you sick and what you can do once you're ready to publish it uh, traditionally, what you do is you'd work, go through a journal. Uh, it takes usually many, many months to publish um, because they have to find reviewers to review your stuff. And mm-hmm. So with Research Hub, you just go into your lab notebook, you draft up whatever you need to draft up with your contributors, and you just hit a button that says publish. Okay. And you can assign authorship and then publish that content onto kind of a news feed. That's okay. out there. How do you make money on Research Hub? You said just by publishing, or is there other ways to make money on Research Hub? Yeah, so there's like a reward algorithm that's on there. And uh, really, it's based off of people's content being up and down voted. Okay. So I can just publish. Like Reddit. It's just like Reddit. So I can publish something with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I publish it and the scientific community thinks this is a high impact thing, they can upvote your content and if your content gets upvoted and depending on who's upvoting it and there's different weightings of things then you will earn some kind of uh revenue and this is revenue from the native token that we have research coin uh and that gets dripped into your account in real time and then if you'd ever like to um use that there's other features on the platform you can use that for or you can convert that out into U.S. dollar if that's okay. what you're interested in. Um, okay. So what about as a non-scientist? Can I participate in Research Hub or read? Or f- besides funding, anyone can fund. Mm-hmm. But can I participate? Yes. Yeah. You can participate. You can you can ask questions. You can um, answer answer questions that you think you might know the answer to. And again, the science the community will kind of vet whether or not that was a quality or not quality answer. Um, you can set up a bounty is one thing there is, which yeah. is you can use your research coin and say, hey, I'm willing to give 
$50 worth of research coin for somebody to be able to help me, um, you know, summarize this paper or help me answer this question, this medical cool. question I might have. So that's like uh, one of the uses that that uh, research coin offers on the platform. But um, how would you prevent, um, I guess, fake stuff, fake news or, you know, like a massive million people just downvoting, upvoting maybe a fake article or fake data? How do you prevent or how do you ensure data integrity, I guess? Yeah, yeah, so it's a really good question. So that goes to an issue that's a lot more upstream that a, a lot of like software companies and more like social media companies have which is like bot prevention and like authenticity and verification mm -hmm. uh and so there's like actually a few things being worked on in like the blockchain world mm -hmm. um that are so there's one thing called zero zero knowledge proofs mm -hmm. which is a really cool concept where you can prove kind of various things about yourself without disclosing exactly what those things are or who you are. Mm. Yeah. So some people who like to remain, say, pseudonymous, um, they're able to prove that maybe they have a, you know, a degree in this, or they can prove that they're a resident of the United States without actually having to fully disclose that information to the public. Okay. So anyway, that's one way, but there's all other verification metrics okay, too. That's like good to have. Authorizing your like ORCID, right? Um, which is like your, it's like a profile that has all your academic stuff on there. So you can authorize with other, like we call them like web two credentials okay. to show you're a real person. And talking about web two, you're also a crypto bro. How's the, uh, the crypto life right now in this uh, bear market for you? Or are you waiting for the next bull run and the next halving of, Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, the next having is in May, May of 2024. So um, for yeah, people are not privy. That's like when the uh, emission rate of Bitcoin gets cut in half. Um, and so it, you notice usually there's four year cycles uh, in the cryptocurrency market. Um, it, it's it's different being on the other end of it, mm -hmm. which is um, I like so I got into crypto back in, in 2017. We, yep. We've talked about it a few times. Uh, more just like um, actually started mining Zcash. I think it was like way before 2017, I feel like. No, it's 2017. I was in my, my okay. master's program at the okay, time. Okay, okay, okay. And uh, I started, one of my friends at uh, in my program got me into it and started mining Zcash at the time. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at it more like it was like, oh, an opportunity to make some money. Uh, it's like more like investing side of things. Uh, and so I was kind of in it more on like the investing side for the last few years until I joined Research Hub. And now I'm in it through the perspective of kind of being a builder in the space and trying mm -hmm. to create a product and things like that. And as an investor, people look at it right now and they're like, Oh, we're in a bear market. The price of things are down because people, you know, got a little ahead of themselves. Yeah. But from the builder perspective, it's actually everyone's firing on all cylinders. There's a bunch of innovations happening on the back end, mm -hmm. and it takes time for things to get built out. I think that's what people don't realize. It's yeah. like takes a long time for things to get like quality controlled and like built out and then adopted and, you know, marketed and things like that. So those things take time. And right now it's on the building side of things. There's so much innovation and like pillars of like web three that are being built out that I'm, I'm like, I'm very excited okay. for the coming couple years when those things <laughs> come to scale and come to fruition okay so this is the the, the crypto web 2 time of being a builder and using crypto for any sort of i guess utility 
right mm. now. This is the building of utility of crypto. Yeah. Stage. But, okay. Yeah. There's like uh, I think one thing that I think crypto wasn't. There was a a couple of uses for it that were like I think very important. Um, so like even like just something simple like transferring uh money to different uh country like yeah I have family in Lebanon like you have to wire transfer and then it goes through a bank and some areas there's a lot of corruption in certain countries mm -hmm. and so this is a way where you can disintermediate and just yeah. send money straight to an individual in any location yeah it's crazy and uh, a lot of people on social media said this is like people who are like multimillionaires are trying to move money from let's say like Dubai to Europe and so forth it's there's so much you know regulation just to get your money like just you know a couple hours of a flight away which is insane to think about and i have the same issue with india like i have to send money sometimes i have to pay so many fees just to get money to india and like you have to there's other other ways to do it but like it's a headache yeah and it reduces a headache sorry you're gonna say something you feel eager no no I have a sense of eagerness <laughs> it's but it's it's very true like it reduces like a lot of the friction that goes in these like payment rails yeah. that go like international um but yeah, I can't actually remember what I was going to say, but <laughs> but but yeah, it's It'll true. But but that's one thing that oh, yeah, what I was going to say was um it's actually so because all the blockchain stuff happens on the public ledger. Mm -hmm. So, uh like if the audience wants to think about it, it's like a giant Google Excel sheet that's mm -hmm. available for viewing from the public. So, everything that gets transacted on the blockchain is you can tell it happened. It's just those uh, addresses that are doing it are anonymized yeah. or pseudonymized, right? They have like a, you know, an address associated with it, but they're like quite trackable, you know, yeah. too. So it's not like people are trying to like skirt the system or maybe people try to skirt the system or try to skirt certain things, but it's very easily trackable. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I, and I saw a podcast with uh, Logan Paul interviewing this crypto guy, but he's like the getting a, centralized currency for an entire planet is one step into getting you know the next advancement of civilization so i think crypto is going to be here be here forever and it's just going to be the next evolution don't cancel my u.s government but it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be the next evolution and it's not i don't know when it's going to happen it's going to happen hopefully in our lifetime and the next thing you know we're going to be like a crazy you know interplanetary species you know let's go mars yeah, dude, um, Mars coin. Mars, Mars coin. coin soon. It'll be the Bitcoin and it'll be Mars coin. Soon to <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Jeff is a, not just a, uh <laughs> entrepreneur, not just a crypto bro. He's also a PhD student. I want to really get into the PhD side of things. Um, so simple question, Jeff, how does one become a PhD student and how does one finish the PhD program? I'm not done with it yet. <laughs> so like, but I could tell you how to get really, really close to finishing yeah. the PhD program. Um, but we were talking a little bit about this, like off camera, but, um, I guess if you think about it, like, uh, flashback to undergraduate, right? So you're an, you're an undergrad and there's a large bulk of people that are biology majors. Um, and there is a much smaller percentage of those people that end up becoming, um, say medical doctors are going into or getting into med school. And I feel like that's usually a lot of people go in as a pre pre-med into undergrad. Yeah. Well, now there's like like the lion's share of those individuals that are not going to be in med school or med students and there's their skill sets in biology. And one route that's not very well advertised to, to people is to go down the graduate school 
route. Mm -hmm. So that could be either a master's degree or a PhD degree. And you can, you can go into a PhD degree with just your bachelor's. So some people think you need to do a master's and then go into the PhD. No, you can go bachelor's degree straight into a PhD and uh, you have to apply as you would like anything generally, but you, you take the GRE. That's one thing that you need to have one of the requirements. And then there's certain like prereqs in terms of like certain bio classes you need, certain math classes, uh, certain GPA like cutoffs to make it through the first filtering process and stuff like that. So that's um, kind of a really traditional application cycle. Mm -hmm. But the so for the PhD program application, probably a biology degree or chem degree, some science degree, mm -hmm. GRE, good score. Mm -hmm. What else would you need? Yeah, that's research good. something. Yeah, some research experience experience definitely helps a lot, um, especially if you're say deficient in some of those other aspects. So for me personally, my GPA in undergrad wasn't great. Mm -hmm. It wasn't great at all. I had a lot of fun in undergrad. Yeah, yeah. But I was there. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, 2012. Um, uh, but, uh, but my GPA wasn't so great. So I actually ended up doing a master's degree afterwards uh, and improved my GPA through my master's degree, but also had the opportunity to, to publish um, a few papers in that degree. So I ended up publishing uh, three papers, two review papers, and one uh, primary Sick. authorship, which was, which was really great. And um, that's a, like a very great way to get a shoe in into getting into a PhD program because whether we like it or not, publications are the currency of academia. You need to get publications because a publication shows I have the scientific rigor and the quality and the wherewithal mm -hmm. to be able to figure out some kind of scientific problem find a solution and publish about it. So that's a, a huge plus. Okay. So now I'm in the program. I got into the grade school. I got into, I don't know, Stanford, you know, hanging out with uh, Mr. Huberman out there, Dr. Huberman out <laughs> there. Um, how do you become a PhD, just PhD doctorate, I guess. Is that the right word? Yeah. yeah. yeah how do yeah. you become a PhD doctorate? Yeah. So do you have like to get your PhD title at the end? Yeah. So I think this is like where the general, it's like the general public, like, has because I, I i get so many questions from my mom she's like <laughs> i don't get it why haven't you graduated it's been more than four years and all these things and so it's a little hard to like to convey it i i hear it from her every time like I'm what is sure. one one meme about phds where it's like what's the worst thing you can ask them which is like uh when are you graduating <laughs> i'm sorry because <laughs> it's like it's okay <laughs> we're cool we're cool yeah okay um which is like a kind of really it's like semi-subjective um but I guess like to go through the flow. Um, so I, uh, my, my program is a little unique where in the first year we take the medical school curriculum. So I was in a lot of the didactic courses in med school um, at UC Riverside. But usually in your first year, you take a lot of coursework mm -hmm. um, relevant to um, your, pr your program specifically on biomedical sciences. So we focus a lot on translational potential of things. So that's why we took the med school course. Gotcha, gotcha. So the first year would be a little bit more traditional as one would expect of a student. Uh, but during that time, what you're doing is you're rotating in different labs. So you want to cool. find a home lab. So that's going to be a lab you're going to work in with your PI, principal investigator, or your boss. Uh, and they work on kind of a niche field of biology usually. And you want to go bounce around to different labs, try them out for like, you know, 10 weeks and find the lab that you would like to join for the next four to five years. What are the type years. of labs you're talking about? 
So uh, they range, right? So there's like labs that are focused on uh, what we call wet lab, which is you're in the lab and you're doing, you're working with mice, you're working with cells, you're doing different techniques like Western blots, ELISAs, staining, uh, some more sophisticated stuff like RNA sequencing or um, yeah, just like kind of more, more traditional types of um, laboratory procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's dry labs. Dry labs are uh, strictly a computational labs so they do bioinformatics they're working with large data sets and they're like processing and working on like machine learning models to be able to predict certain things or do like um kind of predict certain biomarkers or combinations of biomarkers that might be predictive of disease onset or something like that so so you go through all those rotations of labs and that's only the first year so the first year yeah but the rotations are up to you so mm. you go and you hunt down certain labs that you're like, I'm really interested in this. I'm interested in that. Oh, this lab's working on therapeutic development, drug development. Like, I'm really interested in that. And then at the end of the year, you need to have come into an agreement with the bot, the PI of that lab to say, hey, I want to join your lab. Will you accept me into the lab? And once that kind of handshake agreement occurs, then you kind of formally, formally document that. And now you're in that lab and that PI is kind of, you're, you are now the responsibility of that PI, which mm-hmm. is they need to either, um, you know, offer and provide you funding or have funding for you to like do the experimentation you need to do. Um, or you can earn your own money, apply for a grant from the NIH and or NSF or, or some of the other institutions, get your own money and have your money to be able to do the experiments that you need. Okay. And now after that first year of rotations, now you're into... Um, let's say a lab or have your own research going. And I, I hate to ask this question. So how many years is now the PhD program? I'm sure it varies based mm-hmm. on your research. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, it varies on like um, the type of research you do, how long it takes certain, like it depends what you're assessing. Some things take longer. It depends what models you're working with. If you're working with cancer cells, like cancer cells grow really fast. Mm-hmm. So you could think like, you can output and churn a lot of experiments lot of with those. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to say um, you're working on longevity research and you're trying to figure out like some solution to aging. Right. What does that mean? You need to say you're working with mice. Mm-hmm. You need to let those mice age to like, what's the equivalent of an elderly human, you oh, know, wow. which sometimes is like 16 months, 18 months, something like that. So your experiments just to get the mice to the age they need to be is mm-hmm. like a year and a half. Oh, wow. Right? So just depends on the content of the research you're doing. But there's a lot of things in between first year and finishing. Yeah. But usually that, that procedure, or that process takes a total of normative times, usually five years, they say. Mm-hmm. Um, rare occasions, people will finish before that. And more likely than not, people will finish usually around five and a half, six years. Some people in like the seventh and eighth years. Okay. So now you have your data. Now you have your new theory. Mm-hmm. Okay. What are you doing next now with this newfound data? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so like uh, you have, okay. So really the way that you're trained is to, um, you have a hypothesis. So it's like hypothesis driven research. So you need to have a hypothesis in your field of research. So mm-hmm. You know, if you're working on um, like longevity, is you, maybe your hypothesis is that like, uh, you know, fake sugars cause, you know, this condition. 
um, and you need to prove yep. or disprove that fake sugars cause like aspartame and diet coke shit going on right now. Yeah, 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 all of all of that like specific like things. So, so you have the hypothesis, and so now you have to as a scientist and what you get trained to do as a PhD student is like become an independent scientist. So you need to be able to um, experiment, design the experiments that would get you to the answers that you seek. It's that's a lot difficult, more difficult than it seems because there's a lot of, once you start doing the experiments, you realize, Oh wow, this experiment can go wrong. If this little thing is a little different. Oh, this thing was sitting in the fridge for a month later than it should have been. That throws my whole experimentation oh, into sad. whack. There's all these moving parts. Yeah. But you design the experiment to answer those questions. You execute on those experiments, which requires a lot of like attention to detail. Mm -hmm. So execute them. How do you uh, analyze the data that comes out of that? How do you do the statistical analysis for that? There's all different types of stats you can do. Uh, different post hoc tests. Like obviously running like a t-test versus an ANOVA is pretty simple, but like different post hoc tests you do, how do you represent that? And when you get those pieces of data, then you need to aggregate them into what we call a story. And that story gets drafted up into a publication and that publication gets submitted to a journal. And the journal has peer reviewers, peer reviewers that they actually don't pay money for doing the peer review for your co of the content. They actually no incentivization there. They no incentivization. They actually grab academics. So different PIs uh, that are running their labs, mm -hmm. right? Trying to focus on their research. They'll pull them and say, Hey, um, we'd like you to be a peer reviewer or an editor of the journal. Um, and then those are the people that peer review the content that gets submitted in that field. Okay. Um, and if the peer reviewers think that your publication is content to get published, mm -hmm. Uh, it goes out into the world, and that's like a huge stamp of approval. Hell yeah. yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. So that's the whole PhD program nutshell. It sounds like at the end you have to defend your journal, right? You have to defend your work. Yeah. Your so, work. Okay. So some of the stuff like might make its way into the journal, into a journal, and mm -hmm. get published to like the world. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff you do along the way that um you pr you put in a thesis, which is like a usually like a a couple hundred page like document. Um, that has all the data that you've done throughout your whole five years or six years or however long it's been. And uh, yeah, you you do a thesis defense, which is you you present that in a one hour long presentation yeah. and you submit that 200 page document to your committee, which is usually a set of three uh, professors. And it's not until those three professors come into consensus that you have completed enough to earn the PhD degree or you're able to defend your data when mm -hmm. they ask you a bunch of questions, that's when you earn the degree. So it's that's why it's a little subjective because you have a committee that needs to come into consensus. Gotcha. So that's why. And then they sign your PhD certificate. Boom, bam, comes in the mail. I'm visualizing it right now. <laughs> it's almost there. Um, so now you have your PhD. You're, you're you know, fast forward into the future. Mm -hmm. Now as a PhD grad, officially all done, what are your options now? Oh, that, that's, see, that's a really good question because even, so like even people like it's, it's like a small, it's like, there's not that much information on, I think how to even get to the PhD and like mm -hmm. the process of going through that. And there's a lot of stuff we didn't talk about. Like we didn't even talk about qualifying exams. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk about, um, really too much on the process of like 
submitting a grant proposal to earn your own funding yeah. and stuff like that. But anyway, um, once you have the PhD, people think, I think most people think I need to go become a professor. Mm -hmm. I think that's generally what people think. They'll say, I need to go, I need to, I'm going to become a professor if I have a PhD, mm -hmm. which is like absolutely not true. And actually, I think the stat is, um, and just maybe we can run this through chat GPT. Yeah. Jamie. <laughs> uh, I can check. I can check. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think it's one to 2% mm -hmm. of individuals with a PhD actually end up becoming professors, academic oh, professors. Oh, wow. Super low. Tiny percent, tiny percent, which is funny that that's kind of the perception that the the broad perception. And what's the reality? The reality is um, for these. Uh, what's the reality for the PhDs? You know, grads now. Yeah. So the reality is um, there is. Well, first you need to be. You you usually need to go do your postdoc work in a lab, uh, and you can think of this as the equivalent to like doing your residency in med school, mm -hmm. which is you have a lot more autonomy and you can join another lab. You have more independence to do your thing but it's like an intermediary step before you become a full uh in med school or medical curriculum it's uh become an attending or like a full-fledged you know doctor independent mm -hmm. doctor uh you have to do a postdoc before you can become a full-fledged professor so that's the intermediary step you have to do uh to become a professor uh the other route is industry what mm -hmm. they call industry which encompasses um like biotech uh, pharmaceuticals and that spans from like large scale stuff like uh like roke and uh pfizer and like amgen and amgen amgen and and medtronic yeah. and stuff like that <laughs> and um and all the way down to like tiny little startups mm -hmm. that are a handful of people working like on kite pharma like when it started the car t cells yeah, yeah. Kite, kite was small and it scaled up like tremendously yeah, gilead's like oh, i got you buddy <laughs> yeah 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 and you see you've been seeing a lot of these like massive purchases from mm -hmm. a lot of the they're like feeder companies <laughs> that like yeah. get fed into like the big companies and then the big companies buy them out so i'd say a good chunk of people work really work their way into working at those big pharmaceutical companies or biotech companies or startups and certainly pros and cons that come with what, are the, what are the cons that sounds like <laughs> that's a concern for people what are the cons of going into the pharmaceutical industry as a phd grad so I'll, I'll lay out like the, the pros and cons of ac going towards the professor route yeah. and then like the biotech farmer route. Uh, so go down the professor route. Okay. Professor route, long road, <laughs> lot of work. You can, your brain is on all the time. Mm -hmm. You're, you go home. There's people emailing you. There's data flowing in. You need to worry about where you're going to get the next funding for your whole lab. You have to keep submitting a bunch of grants to the NIH saying, Hey, we're doing this type of work. You know, give me money to do the work. Um, it's a lot of high stress. Uh, pro, you get a lot of freedom into the the content of the research that you work on. Cool. You want to work on something. You have the autonomy and the independence to like work on it the way you want, lead the team the way you want. Um, you know, so long as you have the funding to do those things. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, it's literally the polar opposite when you're working in biotech and pharma. Uh, okay. I would imagine. Yeah. Right. So like biotech and pharma is, I think you have a little less independence on what you can do. You're kind of more a little bit in the a cog in the machine type of thing mm -hmm. where you're, you play your pivotal role in like this segment of the pipeline yeah. to make the, whatever the, drug or medical device you want to work on anything. You know? Right. Like the company makes a product. 
So as a researcher, you're not making a product per se, but in a company you are. So you get a little less autonomy, but it's very like, I think, rigid in terms of, you know, this are your hours you're working. Like, yeah, you'll have to maybe do some stuff off hours, but for the most part, you're, it's very well structured. Like this is my work time. And every time out of that, like I have a little bit of freedom to like have a better work-life balance. Yeah. So I'd say those are kind of the, the pros and cons between the two. Interesting. Okay. I, d- I do want to rewind because I think you mentioned it. So I think let's elaborate on getting the PhD process. Mm. Mm. Talk about that. Yeah. Getting the PhD process. So like some of those aspects that we talked that I mentioned that I was like qualifying exam and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So after the first year, um, you, you found your home lab, right? You did your rotations and you, I like lab, you know, number one. I'm going to talk to the PI. Hey, will you accept me? PI says, yep, great. I'd like to accept you. You'll mm-hmm. be in my lab for the next four to five years. Great. Um, there's this really pivotal moment in the middle of your PhD. Usually it happens at the end of your second year, mm-hmm. uh, beginning of your third year, around that time. It's called the qualifying exam. And this was like max pain. <laughs> like this was, this was max pain. <laughs> it's um, so what you're, what you do is um, you set up a committee. The committee is five people, at least in, in, and I think that's usually how it is, but definitely at my university, it was five people and five people, uh, which are professors. So mm-hmm. four in your department and one um, not in your department. So five, five individuals and you have to propose the type of research in detail that you want to do over like the, the course of your PhD. Yeah. So you say, hey, I want to, and usually PhDs are broken into three aims. So three chapters of like what you're trying to figure out. So, you know, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what regulates, you know, this particular protein in this disease? What is the function of that protein in this disease? Mm-hmm. And like, what is the behavioral impact of that? Like, how does it impact the behavior of an individual if you modulate that protein, okay. for example? So that's like an example three-step thing. And you have to go in detail each step. How am I going to figure that out? What's the experiment I'm going to do? Um, what like? And so you go through that and you present it to your committee. And the committee has, usually these are set up for, I think, three hours. Mm-hmm. So you present for usually 30 to 45 minutes and then your committee has about two hours to just ask you questions. So you sit there and they'll ask you a gamut of questions. So it'll be, they can ask you anything from like anything clinical as it pertains to the disease you're trying to study, what type of models you're using to study them, why are you using certain models versus other models, um, just like as nuanced as they want to get. Mm-hmm. And so you have to um, essentially go through that uh, and then at that point, you're effectively a master's. You, you earned your master's degree. Interesting. Yeah. So if you ever left the program after you finished your qualifying exam, you'd actually, they call it mastering out. So you would leave the program mm. without completing it, but you'd come out with a master's degree. And you can always come back maybe if you wanted to. You could always come back. You could always come mm. back. And um, I guess one one thing that's important to note about PhDs is... Uh, <clears throat> you actually don't pay money to be in there. They pay you a stipend, mm-hmm. right? So how you much are, are you getting paid? You're paid a stipend. Um, on average. It's not like a lot, yeah. <laughs> but the way that it's framed is you're half a student and you're half an employee. Okay. So as a PhD student, you're half a student, half an employee, and half of the work that you're doing is considered like a learning process. And that's your 
credits as a student. Okay. And the other half is you're an employee. So you get paid, you can think of it like half the salary of what a normal salary would be. Okay. Um, because the other half is used to, is considered paying your tuition for being the student. So anyway, uh, yeah. As a, And then you finish your qualifying exam. And so now you're, you can continue for the next three to four years kind of doing the proposed research you said. Uh, and then it's kind of a straight shot and you have yearly meetings with your committee to say, mm. Hey, I'm on the right track. And they kind of tell you, you need to do this or do more of that and so on and so forth until you make it to the end. Sounds like the step three process in med school. Interesting. It does. Yeah. A little in terms bit. of yearly check-ins. Okay. Yeah. Yearly check-ins, but there's less, um, it's, there's, there's, there's not very much standardization of things mm -hmm. like med school. There's like step one, two, three, which they've weaned off of. Like they've done a pass fail on those yeah. now, but there's like standardized, like you need to hit these okay. metrics. You finish this at this time, but with the PhD, there's a lot of subjectivity and leniency. And so you kind of have to guide, spend a lot of time driving your own direction okay. for it. And what's, what's your research that you're working on? Yeah. So my research is specific for, um, so we're a, a virology lab, but we focus a lot on mostly inflammation in the brain as it pertains to viruses. Mm -hmm. So uh, the bread and butter of the lab is HIV. So HIV, um, people living with HIV have, because of like the antiretroviral therapies that ex have existed for like 20 years now, mm -hmm. uh, they live to the normal kind of age, the span of life of a normal individual. But they actually have a lot of neurocognitive deficits that pop up. And mm -hmm. it's actually in some studies so show... So brain damage. Yeah. So these manifest as behavioral impairments. Mm -hmm. So a lot of kind of dementia-like symptoms. And these popped up. Uh, and these pop up in up to 55% of people living with HIV. That's half. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's some studies that say some numbers smaller, depending on like sampling. Yeah, but up to half. Up to half. Wow. So... Uh, my lab. Uh, well, my how many people have HIV in the world right now? Uh, in the world, I believe it's thirty-eight million. A lot. As uh, there's a uh, the UN AIDS. I think this was in twenty nineteen. Was thirty-eight million. So yeah. might be a bit less now, yeah. but in that ballpark. It was like two million in the U.S. I think I read right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. T uh, I think two million in the U.S. Um, somewhere between one and two million mm -hmm. in the U.S. Uh, of a l large portion in, in the southern southern region of Africa, mm -hmm. and there's two, there's two different clans of um, of HIV, so it's a little different. But okay. um, anyway, so we're focused on understanding the mechanism behind why that you can't really detect the virus anymore after you're on those those antiretrovirals, mm -hmm. but you still have neurocognitive problems that are coming up. So if there's no virus that you can detect, why is there still neurocognitive problems? coming mm -hmm. up and so my research focuses on figuring out some targets that might be crucial or pivotal in generating some of those neurocognitive problems have you considered using moderna's research that's upcoming with their mrna vaccine for hiv that's coming up <laughs> no yeah we haven't actually haven't like kept up with that yeah it's um, coming up <laughs> okay yeah i i'll need to look into it yeah i'm tell your lab like hey guys guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's do it let's do it <laughs> let's look at this <laughs> Yeah, no, there's like some things that, um, you know, we know work fairly well. So there's like certain people with uh, a genetic mutation in uh, this receptor CCR5 
Is that the people who cannot get HIV? Yes, yeah, so yeah. people can't get HIV. And so uh, so there's like some things that are known. I, I it's like Magic Johnson, I think, is an example, right? No, there was no. Uh, some, somebody. The white guy, I remember. There was somebody in, um, I think it was, uh, I think it was in China where they, they like super unethically just crispered <laughs> like two kids or something like that. Okay. But um, I think they, uh, we might need to fact check me, um, but they did like a CCR5 um, kind of knockout on those kids. Wow. Yeah. Um, so like, like in the future, like some gene therapy things might be, uh, in the works. Um, but yeah, so in the lab I'm working on figuring out like, cause there's, a, when, when things manifest symptomatically, there's like an underlying cellular thing occurring mm -hmm. that's causing that, right? Like behavioral problems, like in the CNS is because often there's that's like central nervous system. Oh yeah. Central nervous system. Yeah. In the central nervous system, they're often like impairments in the in neurons right mm -hmm. so there's like something going on with the neurons like maybe the neurons are all dying maybe they're like not able to communicate with each other very well like right those like neurotransmitters are not firing off very well mm -hmm. maybe there's a lot of glutamate around and that's causing like toxicity and a lot of times um as, especially in the context of viruses there's a lot of inflammation mm -hmm. right there's a lot of inflammation in the brain so uh i'm my research focuses a lot on the inflammation in the brain, what type of inflammation we're seeing, right? And this kind of goes hand in hand a bit with COVID, right? There's mm -hmm. a lot of kind of the brain fog and long COVID symptoms people are talking about. There's inflammation profiles. You see different factors going up. Mm. People talk about the cytokine storm, right? There's certain factors that go up and how do those factors impact kind of the integrity of neurons around them? Yeah, but it, it, but what you were trying to get at earlier is like if a lot of this data is kind of like just available and access accessible for everyone. A lot of the research would be way more streamlined, way more incentivized and just data and information just be like available and you can do something out of it much faster, more, more efficiently. That's like so, spot on. Yeah. So research hub, it's going to be the next big thing. I really, really believe it. Um, but then with all what you're doing, how do you do, how do you do everything that you do? How do you make the time for everything that you do when it comes to being an entrepreneur, a PhD student, a crypto bro. Yeah. Um, and now married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you make time for everything? Yeah, recently married. Um, it's, uh, I, you kind of like, I don't know. I'm one of those people that I like to, <clears throat> I don't like sprint very often, but I like do things consistently over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So, Usually my days are kind of broken up uh, in the mornings. I like to do usually kind of try to front load meetings in the mornings and then do a lot of the kind of, uh, you know, lab work uh, in the middle of the day. Right. So do like kind of the traditional like work, uh, like eight hour work workload mm -hmm. uh, and then come home and then, you know, eat and kind of hang out for a little bit. But then bust out the laptop and do some like light Get data to work data analysis like responding to emails like things things of that nature and it's really like time management like you have a lot of time a lot of times in there's like pockets of time that are available in the middle of the day where people would just kind of maybe go on their phone or maybe they'll like chat with somebody next to them in like their cubicle or in their lab space mm -hmm. and like instead of doing that that's like 10 or 15 minutes where you can you know get this thing knocked out yeah. so yeah it's a lot of um there's a little bit of sacrifice too of course right you need to i know maybe pull away from doing 
some of like the what do you want to call it enjoyable things you want to yeah. do and just um you know it i guess maybe so this is gonna sound cliche but Did like <laughs> really doing something you're super hyper passionate about and that you actually don't feel like i know you like people say you wanted to work a job you don't feel like you're working because mm-hmm. you enjoy it so much mm-hmm. but really that's that's really how it feels i enjoy like doing a lot of the work that i do at research hub just because i'm very passionate about the issue i'm very excited about finding a solution for that mm-hmm. the like environment of the people that you know i'm like interfacing with is really wonderful and i don't feel like i'm working and so where someone might think uh. oh i'm doing a lot of work i think yeah i'm working i'm doing a lot some work and i'm doing work that's like kind of enjoyable to me and so it doesn't mentally weigh me down as maybe some people might think okay and then what's your what's your best advice for people who are similar to you just like hustlers what's your advice to them mm. just general speaking mm. um i would say uh one of the things be it would be like just do something you're just passionate about like i don't know maybe i'm like uh i'm entering boomer years now <laughs> so i'm like 30 <laughs> so i'm like 31 but um like when you're in your early 20s you kind of don't have a sense of time too much you're like oh, i'm just gonna do this and just like a day goes by and you're like yeah that's just like go have fun do that yeah uh but i think afterwards you kind of have a little bit more sense of time and you really start realizing that time is like probably one of the most valuable assets um and so i would say just do something you really enjoy and you're really passionate about doing mm-hmm. and i think everything else falls into place after that yeah yeah. No, so I, I totally agree. Like w- you have so much time in high school and college, like mm-hmm. insane amount of times and just don't waste it on video games. Don't waste it on like stupid shit, hanging out, eating food and just doing absolutely nothing. Just grind, 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 and then you'll be completely fine. Yeah, I don't know if you remember Mr. Dare. Mr. Dare said this to us. Yeah. The people who work hardest in their 20s are the most successful in their 30s. Yeah. And I... they had so much time from the age of like 16 to 25. Use it. Yeah, I would say that's like a really good, but also like you have to be in the right mental space to, to and mature enough to know that you should do that. Yeah, too, yeah. Right? Like a lot of people aren't. I certainly wasn't. And like, <laughs> like, you know, so like in that time, you know, but it, it's also important to have those patches of time where you're enjoying your life and like yeah. have fun. You can't like at the same time, do enjoy your life. Don't don't get me wrong, but don't waste time that you have because you are probably the most sharp in those ages and have the most time and. You know, there's there's way more avenues that you can like learn and lean into. Um, and I love what you said earlier about, you know, uh, being a bio major or chemical or chem major, anything in, in the life sciences in general. There are so many people who end up being a bio major and like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a nurse, mm-hmm. or, you know, something like that. And then or I'm going to get my master's. But they really have no idea what, what the heck they want to do. Like, yeah, I was a bio major. I had no idea what the heck I wanted to do. Like, I think you mentioned Joyce was like in the same realm. Right. I was like, I didn't know what I wanted to. I got my MBA instead. And I got like just having the business degree with my bio degree open like the world to me. So it's just like, but the people who really want to do, you know, be a bio major and really want to get into the PhD program. So thanks for sharing that information because I'm super passionate about what's next because there's not enough knowledge, not enough counseling in college to what to do as a bio major, chem major or anything that sense. So. Yeah, there isn't enough information about it. And I mean, we just scratched the surface of yeah. like that, right? Like those are kind of the two bigger buckets of what you can do. But there's governmental jobs 
right? You can go work at like the NIH or the CDC or even like the DOD funds yeah. and like has their own types of labs that work on things. Even um, this is like kind of like cool. So like NASA even has a lot of like opportunities to fund um, like biological research mm -hmm. um, as it pertains to like yeah, growing you know, like a tree or bacteria on Mars or the moon or something. Yeah, stuff like that. But even some like really cool stuff and uh, things like how radiation in the transit from like, say you're going from Earth to the moon or to Mars, how like the radiation impacts like your gut microbiome mm. on that tra that transit over. Like stuff like that that you wouldn't think, but they're like opportunities to work in like these more. Yeah, you can work for airline companies and they need to see what the, the temperature and pressure uh, what if how it would affect the fuel itself yeah, of yeah. the jet fuel and they do that every single flight going up there's way way out like a thousand of options what you can do as a bio or chem major or related yeah even like um this is like much more niche but like becoming a patent attorney right mm. you need to have some kind of like engineering or scientific yeah, degree yeah, yeah. to then go to get your jd to become a patent lawyer to you know help pharmaceutical companies with like that's like a they whole, make bank they make bank yeah that's like a whole like jurisdiction in pharmaceutical is yeah. like and med device yeah yeah like uh different like patent ip and and things like that that's really yeah, really ip really law important. is insane one of my buddies is an engineer and a lawyer mm -hmm. and actually went to his wedding in a couple of weeks but uh this guy's a genius man like to have that much wealth of knowledge is insane but it comes with a lot of i'm sure you know monetary incentivization totally. so there are there are avenues left and right Totally. You know, I would say I would say one of the good things. Maybe I'll, I'll, like, last thing I'll say on this is, uh, 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 if you can overlap skill sets, it makes you that much more marketable, right? Mm. So like, if you're just kind of uh, a biology major, like your friends does engineering, like you can be very successful. And if that's your passion, definitely like just yeah. go down that route. But if you overlay that with like a skill set in like law, right, you become like a very kind of niche individual. And when people need you as a resource, you become very, very, very marketable. Yeah. And my advice for any person in any corporate industry or any, my advice for anyone in life is to have a mentor. You mm. really need a mentor because sometimes you might be going down a path that you might not be, you know, fully aware of. It might be the unknown. Find a mentor. They will set you the right tone. Even if it's not something that they do, they'll set you in the right direction. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Mentorship, especially if like, um, you know, I don't know, like, you're like me, like my parents never went to college. Right. So I didn't have, my parents didn't know anything about a PhD program. Mm -hmm. My mom still doesn't know. It's funny. One of my friends, uh, we just had our graduation, our commencement. Yeah. And, um, he was like, you know, his parents were there and stuff like that. And he was telling me, I was like, Oh, how was, you know, how'd your parents like it? And he was like, yeah, I looked at my mom. My mom was like looking up something on her phone <laughs> and she said, she typed, what is a PhD? Yeah. in her phone <laughs> on her son's graduation date for like the phd and so it's like it's <laughs> yeah. funny bro yeah and it's like you, you don't get <coughs> mentorship from your parents especially mm -hmm. if they're not like you know traditionally academically trained and so find that mentorship from yeah. somebody um so yeah i'm this is a, one of the reasons i do the podcast because if you need to find a mentor we have a phd to be almost done with it he's also a master's also undergraduate degree also entrepreneur also everything so if you need a if you need a mentor, we got Jeffrey Corey and I will always be anyone's mentor. I'm trying to like, my, my whole goal of this is to like just connect knowledge together and connect yeah. people together. So if you need someone, I got you, you know, just keep watching the podcast. Um, and speaking of which I got some, uh, you know, to end this, I got some simulated questions for you. Let me grab my iPad. Oh boy. All right, let's oh. go. 
Oh, tragic. Tragic. Oh, I can cut this Done. out. Oh, thank you, editing. Maybe I'll leave it in. <laughs> Who knows? I was supposed to cut something out, and I didn't. So let's see how this goes. Ready for the questions? Let's do it. This is surprise questions. He does not know what this is going to be. <laughs> All right. Cool. All right. <laughs> oh, you're not ready for these, are you? Dude. Okay. Okay. I don't like that you're giggling about him. All right. Ready? 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 Let's do it. Let's be something silly. If you were the president, what would you do? If I was the president, what would I do? Um, I would. I think I would definitely uh, beef up um, medical and biological uh, funding, the budget around that. Mm-hmm. But I would um, try to not put that all onto the NIH because large bureaucratic systems work really slowly. And True. I would try to um, actually fragment that into much smaller orgs and then try to disseminate the money that way. Okay. And we talked a lot about what you do. Uh, what are the, some strange random habits or hobbies that you have? Um, or strange random ones. Uh, I was, uh, I played a lot of ping pong. <laughs> I was in the ping pong club in high school. Um, so ping pong is something I'm like su- super competitive with like sports. Um, so some, you're a good like ball that. player. I'll tell you that ball up. Yeah. yeah we can play basketball <laughs> after this maybe. Um, and then here's a, here's the last one. Uh, if there's one thing in life that you, uh, want and are willing to struggle for that we haven't talked about, what would that be? I got super deep. Um, I think just uh, like uh, having a uh, a life that you can be proud of that mm. that you've gone through because people. I think a lot of times people people seek happiness, um, but there's times in life where there's like not gonna be. Uh, happiness sometimes Mm -hmm. and so i think seeking a life that you can be really happy like you can be proud of that you did and so that can be like for people that's different right like for people that's i want to have a family and for people that's i want to have a really balanced life i want to have a family and i want to have my career but not really lean too heavily into either one muslim's financial success something like that so i think yeah Yeah. this is quote by uh ralph Emerson, I think his name is, is a poet or a writer. It's a really long uh, poet or poem. But Ralph Emerson said, to live life is to leave some sort of legacy behind via as simple as like planting a tree or making a child smile. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what you're kind of going for. So yeah, just leave the world a better place than it was before. Yeah, yeah. And that that's that's different for each individual. And each individual has to figure that out yeah. along the way. And then open forum, uh, anything you want to say? Final thoughts? Uh, no, I mean, like, thank you so much for having me on this. Yeah. This was a, this was a pleasure. It's really good, you know, catching up and seeing yeah. you again, catching up like in public, like so <laughs> everyone public. can see it. I um, should do live next time. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I think um, yeah, one thing I'd I'd like to like definitely say is I'm really happy like we can talk about these things and there's like. Um, an audience that will hopefully like learn something from it because in my opinion, I think science communication is really important because 
everyone's a biological or like organism. <laughs> yeah. And so everything we do and prescribe has an impact on every single person that exists. And so I think it's important to that people are educated as much as they can on the topics of that. And I think that one thing your podcast does is give a venue for people to learn about those things. So yeah, yeah I appreciate that. And I think you should definitely keep at it and uh, I'll be here to hop on for round two anytime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, would love to have you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you everyone for watching. This is Jeffrey Corey, soon to be PhD. I'll see you next time. Peace. Nice. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>